This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Denise Phillips about her new book, Acolytes of Nature, Defining Natural Science in Germany from 1770 to 1850, and that just came out in 2012 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a really wonderfully rich book. It's extraordinarily well-researched. It's just packed full of lots of interesting stories, accounts of the emergence and the multiplicity, um, and the, the sort of changing and transformations of some of the basic concepts that we now associate with the history of science um, in a context that spans the end of the 18th century and the early and mid part of the 19th century in Germany. Now, this is an example of um, the history of concepts and the history of emerging um, sort of categories and linguistic usages, um, and it's really in its best sense, in its most full sense, and it's very well grounded in a very rich account of what's happening in German history at the time period. Um, there's just there's a lot of wonderful stuff in the book. We had a great time talking about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Denise. Hello, Carla. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Denise Phillips about her new book, Acolytes of Nature, Defining Natural Science in Germany, 1770 to 1850. This was such a pleasure to read, and thank you so much for making time for us today, Denise. Oh, no problem at all. My pleasure. So could you start us off by saying just kind of a little bit about what brought you into this field? How did you get into this topic in particular? Well, um, I came to the history of science um, in graduate school, having taken a lot of classes in American social history as an undergrad and um, something that I felt very strongly in my first two years of graduate school when I was deciding on a topic was that I wanted to write about something that wasn't just about a small number of famous researchers. So um, when I kind of discovered this landscape of German voluntary associations that were really, you know, at that point, people had not written a lot about, um, that seems like a great way to do a project that had a much broader social reach um, than, you know, uh, other topics I might have chosen. So that was part of my enthusiasm was it was kind of carried forward from things that I'd found excited, exciting about history as an undergraduate and then encountering, um, you know, a field like history of science that is for good reasons, often about small numbers of people and wanting to find some way also to think about larger groups. So this was this book, if I'm not mistaken, started off as a dissertation. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the process of moving from the dissertation to the book manuscript, uh, what was that process like for you? Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Were there any sort of major transformations, any major changes, or was it fairly consistent from one to the other? 
Um, I, I think there were a lot of, of conceptual changes. Um, something that was a fairly late revelation for me in the revision process was how distinctively German the story I was telling was. I mean, I, uh, the stuff that's in the introduction about, um, you know, the term Naturwissenschaft being hard to translate for most of the 19th century, that was something I found out only fairly late when I started doing a little bit of comparative research, actually for an article I was writing. Um, and, and that really helped the argument of the book gel, I think, um, that comparative angle. Um, and then I think too, realizing that, um, that really there was one division line, this division between the learned and the educated public that was kind of the central driving, uh, pressure (laughs) of the story. That was also a kind of, um, you know, I, I knew I knew the story had something to do with the expansion of the public sphere, but that formulation also came relatively late in the revision process, and I feel like made made the book um, hold together in a different way than earlier drafts had. Um, so yeah, I feel like there were a, a couple sort of late revelations that really helped to bring things into focus for me. Great. And were there any sort of historiographical items that you, or any people working in historiography or in history of science that you came across that you found particularly influential in shaping the way you thought about your own project? Well, you know, Tom Broman is is the obvious person who's also written um, a lot of really interesting things about uh, science and medicine in the public sphere in Germany. And his work was very important um, for me early on. Um, I was in grad school when um, Rainy Destin and Peter were working on the objectivity book and was really interested in that project as well. Um, and I think that uh, the sort of whole project of historical epistemology was very interesting to me. Um, and it was, it was always important in how I was framed what I was doing from the dissertation you know, up until the final res, uh, revisions for the book. This actually brings us to something that I wanted to ask you about, and I was sort of thinking of asking you about this later, but uh, you know, let's get right into it now. There's a lot of the, the arguments of the book, and it's for listeners who haven't yet gotten the chance to read the book, it's extraordinarily elegantly written. It's just full of not just wonderfully told stories of individuals and their families, but also the prose is very, very um, kind of elegant and embroidered and in a really nice way. The One of the things that's consistent throughout the uh, throughout the chapters and really that forms kind of the groundwork of a lot of the arguments in the book is a very careful attention to language and terminology. Mm-hmm. So the, throughout the book, the chronicling and describing of the changing use of terms is very, very important. And you state explicitly that one of the book's methodologies is to track the history of collective linguistic usage. Mm-hmm. So this seems related to the kind of work in the objectivity book that you mentioned and in the broader project or projects that we might um, subsume under the category of historical epistemology. And so I wanted to sort of ask you to talk a little bit about that. In particular, you, you give us a quote here um, from Quentin Skinner, I think, that when writing the history of a word, tracing changes in meaning is not enough. We also need to look for moments when a word's reference changed or moments when it began to be used in new kinds of speech acts. And I think that's just a great quote. So can you talk a little bit about that as it shapes the way you approach this project? Because it does seem really central to a lot of the kind of work that you're doing in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I, 
that that quote for me was a, a great way of expressing something that I had um, had struggled with a way to articulate early in the project, which is that part of the story I'm telling is about the investment of enthusiasm into a term. So you can you know you can find people in the 18th century using this word in ways that sound like the standard 19th century usage, but it isn't a rallying cry. Um, it you know it it isn't something that leads charges <laughs> in German culture. And, and that kind of transformation seems like a really explaining that accretion of emotion around the term um, seemed to me a, a big part of what I needed to do uh, to, to carry off the argument. Um, and, you know, particularly as a German historian working on topics like this, there's actually within German history, there's another sort of standard brand of history that what I'm doing is is recognizable as, and that's something called um, conceptual history, Begriffsgeschichte, um, which is is sort of a, you know, a kind of standard mode of operating within the um, German historical profession, and it's associated with figures like Reinhard uh, Reinhard Kozlek, and there's a, a huge um, six-volume reference work that I mentioned in my introduction that takes standard terms of modern political vocabulary, um, words like nation or citizen, and looks at the, the complicated histories of their usage. Um, and that was something that I, I was sort of aware of all along, but um, how much what I was doing was like that um, you know, also I think with some crucial differences was something that um, that I also realized only in the book revision stage, um, for the most part. So that for a, for a Germanist, I, that's an easy way to my for my German colleagues, that's an easy way to explain what the book is about. You know, it's a sort of joint conceptual and social history of <laughs> of natural science as a concept, and they know what that means at least loosely. <laughs> Great. Well, so you've, you've already mentioned for us this term, Naturwissenschaft, that's very central to the book. And the book, in fact, we, we might as well start at the very beginning. So it traces the emergence of a category um, that we might think of or translate as science, and we might not. And you can sort of you know, talk us through uh, the issues involved in that later on in the, in the discussion. Uh, traces the emergence of this category within German-speaking Europe between 1770 and 1850. And you've mentioned the importance of um, the emergence Emerging of Naturwissenschaft as a kind of rallying cry. And you chart this by looking at the relationships between a kind of changes in development of a concept, a word, and as you mentioned, um, sort of a group, so sites of collective social action. So, Denise, when you were looking at this um, set of phenomena, why this period in particular? What makes this particular period in German history so rich for looking at the kinds of phenomena that you wanted to look at? That's a really good question because originally the study was supposed to start in 1815 and go to 1870 uh, and be entirely a 19th century story. That was when I started researching the dissertation, what I thought I was going to do. And um, I guess the, the further I get into my career, the more fascinated I am by the transformations that take place in that rough century covered in the book. So between the mid-18th and the mid-19th century, um, which is also the... the um, there's a sort of standard label for that within the German historiography, the Zadelzeit, which means the saddle period or this kind of period of transition between the early modern and the modern. Um, And it's a period of enormous upheaval in German society and politics for all kinds of reasons, not the least of them being the um, revolutionary and Napoleonic wars. Um, But there's, it's it's a sort of, it's a world that is, um, 
still not completely familiar um, that is foreign and um, uh, in, in interesting ways, but is just sort of close enough to our own conceptual universe, um, you know, I think to be really interesting. And that I think that's what's sort of fascinating to me. Um, about this project and, and also um, some other stuff that I'm working on now is kind of watching the familiar uh, snap into focus or categories that um, that we use in our own um, our own intellectual universes today um, and being able to see the world just before that happens and, and watch that come into being I find very interesting. Now, science emerged, or there were various um, terms and concepts here that emerged as a label at the same time that the Enlightenment public, as you tell us, was becoming larger, it was becoming more complex, and it was becoming much more multi-layered. The relationship between the evolution of science or different modes of science and the changing nature of the public or public (coughs) or publics is really crucial. Oh, excuse me. Aha! That was a little <coughs> okay. Sore throat break in new books in science, technology, <coughs> and society. Okay, um, so the relationship between the evolution of science and the changing nature of public or publics is really crucial to what you're arguing here. So let's actually turn for a moment and go from science um, as our focus and talk about this other word that's been cropping up in what we've been talking about, and that's the the word public. This is a very kind of plural um, notion here, and it's one of the most important things you're arguing, at least from the perspective of a reader, um, is that you know when we think about this concept or term public, it's not at all a simplistic thing, right, or a singular thing in this context. So can you talk about that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, that um, it, that was another thing that it, it took me a while to work out for myself um, because there's a, you know a literature out there as you know about the bourgeois public sphere, and um, another, one of the questions that initially motivated the, the project was thinking about um, you know the nature of bourgeois identity in science. And it took me a while to let go of that (laughs) and to realize that this unitary bourgeois public sphere that had been so important in the initial stages of conceptualizing my research wasn't really what I needed to talk about. Um, And that, that in fact, this older category that um, of learnedness, which um, you know, if you read the secondary literature, you don't really think is going to be an imp- important to a, a project that stretches into the the mid nineteenth century. That that was really it was really about learned identity in a lot of cases, and this this um, being a part of the republic of letters in some meaningful sense that was the status issue for a lot of the people I was looking at, and, and also the boundary issue too, um, what people were um, you know trying to keep people out of. Um, and then also that, you know, I think that there are also, I think that there's a lot of work or an argument you could also make um, if you were to revisit some older issues about the emergence of disciplines in the 19th century that could also be usefully framed in terms of um, these specialized publics that I talk about in the introduction, some the botanical public, right? I mean, um, and which is a somewhat different way of conceptualizing what's going on um, than the older literature on professionalization and discipline building, I think, Um, although it would cover some of the same ground. Great. Thank you. 
So b- before we get into the first chapter, there's another really interesting conceptual issue that comes up in the introduction that you've actually alluded to in describing uh, one of the things that brought you to this project in the first place, and that's the issue of comparison. So throughout the book, you either allude to or directly invoke comparisons between what's happening in the German-speaking world and also what's happening in a kind of comp- comparable case in France or in England. So for a moment, let's just look directly at this. Um, why did you decide at various points to invoke this kind of comparative framework? And what does that sort of framework um, allow us to see in this case study that you're presenting us with, a really wonderful case study, that we wouldn't be able to see just by focusing on the German-speaking world in particular? Um, you know, I, I think as as is often the case with comparative history, it helps to show the contingency of things that can seem self-evident. But that's it. You know, I think that's something that we as historians of, of science are, you know, are are very familiar with. The fact that this isn't an inevitable category. The fact that you could have people who are talking to each other and are part of an interrelated intellectual tradition. That is the kind of pan-European community um, of people interested in the natural sciences who are nonetheless coming up with different categories um, that don't all map onto each other. Um, I, I think too, you know, there's within German history, there's a, a sort of long tradition of, um, of writing with that implicit comparative eye, um, that, and a lot of the debates that have driven the field for the last 30, 40 years, um, have been about how much Germany was or wasn't like France or Britain and what that means for the longer trajectories of German history. So I think there's part of it is trained as a German historian, you get kind of used to those sorts of questions. (laughs) Um, and it feels a very natural thing and, and almost a necessary thing to do. Um, and particularly, you know, needing to work. It's, I think given, um, the way some of these historiographical debates have gone, it's particularly important within German history to art to articulate clearly um, what sorts of differences you see. I mean, I think there. Um, I, I very much didn't want this story, which is about a German particularity, to be read as a sort of um, older version of the Zondervig debate that sees uh, kind of um, sees Germany on a kind of pathological path already in the early part of the 19th century in comparison to to Britain or France. Great. Now, thank you so much for. Um, for talking so much about these methodological issues. I think these are really, really interesting. And as we get into the book, I think we'll, we'll also see how some of these issues will come up again um, in the individual chapters, I think in really interesting ways. Okay, so when you... When we get to the first chapter, Natural Knowledge and the Learned Public and the Enlightenment, this chapter opens by actually taking us through the history of one of these central terms that we've been talking about, and certainly a central term for the book, and that's the term and the category Naturwissenschaft. So for um, listeners who may not be familiar with this term and its history, can you talk a little bit about that? How does that map onto, or not, what we call science? So in um, the 18th century, it's a a composite word, and it first appears in a book title in the very early 18th century, and and you can sort of find it used occasionally. Um, And in German, it's it's a composite word. Um, Natur means nature, obviously. And Wissenschaft is an older word that can mean um, kind of knowledge in general or sometimes learned knowledge in particular. Um, And 
this becomes a much more common composite, in the, particularly in the last third of the 18th century. Um, it's a word people use more often, but they don't. They use it sometimes to mean um, natural history, sometimes to mean natural philosophy, which um, are two different categories in the early modern period, um, and sometimes to mean. Um, a much broader range of engagements with nature than the later 19th century category. So they'll, they'll um, lump all sorts of, of kind of technological knowledge, um, what the 19th century would call an applied science under this term too. Um, so it, it's just, it's, it's sort of fuzzier and looser in the 18th century and also sometimes can mean different things. Um, so it's, uh, I think you can already see, um, which is one of the things I'm arguing in these early chapters, you can already sort of see a certain community emerging, but it doesn't have nearly the sharp boundaries that it did later on um, by the 19th century. Great. Thank you. Now, another term that comes up here as really central um, is the history of the term or the history of the concept Naturforscher. Um, so the meaning of this, as you show us, I think very compellingly here, changes over time. Can you explain what that means for our listeners and why it's important to the work that you're doing in this chapter? So um, roughly it means um, it, just, it means na- uh, a natural researcher is how I translated it literally in a lot of parts of the book. Um, it's a term that Germans stop using when they in the 19th century when they start using Naturwissenschaftler, which is like scientist. Um, so it's it's a sort of um, you know somebody who, in his his range of interests, um, is similar to the modern professionalized science, but um, you know is is in other ways embedded in this um, initially in this uh, you know 18th century and then in then early 19th century intellectual space I'm describing. Um, so it has some uh, is whose primary affiliation is not yet the affiliations of a modern professionalized researcher, um, but are bound more by the, the learned world I'm exploring. Great. Now, the learned world that you just brought up is um, makes me think of the learned public, right, that you're um, chronicling or that you're introducing us to in this chapter. One of the things that the chapter's arguing in that, you know, the, the argument in the rest of the book will also um, continue to allude to is the existence of multiple publics, uh, multiple sort of overlapping and engaging publics. How does this learned public um, or learned world that you mentioned differ from the broader public or the broader marketplace for cultural goods in this period? And why is that important? So there's a higher entry fee to be a member of the learned public. You have to be to um, someone who's part of a set of social relationships that don't uh, just exist of commodity exchange. You have to have recognition from other people who were already in this community, already recognized as learned. Um, you have to be actively engaging in certain kinds of activities. Often you have to have certain kinds of possessions, depending on what your interests are, the right instruments, the right collections, the right books or at least access to the same. Um, so there's a, a much higher set of, of material and social um, entry requirements than to be a member of the general um, enlightened public um, in the 18th century. And this is something that's very much recognized at the time, that people, people don't always employ this distinction consistently, but the difference between um, being that type of a person and, and just being, say, a person sitting in a theater audience um, or, or uh, reading, um, you know, the, the reader of a journal um, is, is definitely something that, that people recognize. 
Right. Now, one of the things that you sort of follow um, follow this into, or one of the aspects that you continue to develop this notion in the next chapter, is by showing us that learned networks of natural knowledge were often very socially heterogeneous. So can you talk a little bit about that? What kinds of people um, were involved in these learned networks, and how might we be surprised by some of them? Or might we be surprised at all? Yeah, there, um, you know, in in a, um, one of the incorporated towns, a place like Nuremberg, you have figures like Jakob Strom, who I talk about in the introduction, who's an engraver and printer, mm-hmm. um, who's tied into these networks. You have um, gardeners, particularly the gardeners of um, important courts or very wealthy noblemen, often possessed a really significant amount of botanical knowledge and were very well connected within exchange networks. Um, you also have, you know, certain kinds of skilled craftsmen, people coming out, say, of the um, porcelain manufactories being set up in Central Europe who have really extensive chemical knowledge. Um, there are also people who are um, kind of chemical and electrical showmen on occasion that end up as part of these networks. So people who are um, making a living uh, from by entertaining the enlightened public. Um, and And that's part of what creates a lot of the anxiety that you see as well that gets particularly strong by the late 18th century is the fact that um, you have on the one hand people who are from kind of traditional learned backgrounds, right? Um, Members of one of the learned professions, um, people who've studied at a university. And then you have a variety of other kinds of folks who possess, in a lot of cases, a lot of expertise um, and are interesting people to be in exchange with, but who also create some status difficulties for Natalforsha, particularly over and against other members of what in the 18th century was called the learned estate. Um, So, you know, you don't find, say, historians or people whose primary interest lies in in history or philology consorting with a very wide range of kinds of people in the um, course of doing their research. And that was something that was true for Naturfosha, that they were dealing with instrument makers, with gardeners, um, with engravers and printers in um, certain kinds of ways. And, um, and, and this was something that, you know, in the late 18th century was still a particular status issue for a, a, certain, a group of people who, who still look down on people that use their hands, for one thing. Um, you know, so Natorfosha were always, educated Natorfosha were always at risk of, um, you know, seeming like artisans, which is something that um, people have written about for the 17th century as well. Um, and, and that issue very much carries forward into my period and, is, and this sort of part of the story I'm telling as well. Thank you so much. Now, one of the things um, that's really interesting and that's important to the early chapters, but also later on, is that you're you're showing us the importance of relationships between the general and the local, and particular localities wind up playing a very important role in this story. One of the localities that is particularly important for this early chapter is Dresden. So can you talk a little bit about what makes Dresden so interesting and important for this story, and in what way did um, so some of the local context that you're looking at here shape the kinds of stories that you're telling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the fact that I chose Dresden um, definitely pulled the book in certain directions. Um, And I tried to sort of look at some other different kinds of cities to balance that out a bit. But I thought Dresden 
is interesting in part just because of the simple fact that it had so many um, generalist natural scientific societies in, in comparison to other places. So it, it allowed me to um, to see things that things that changed and happened as part of a slower transition in some other locales in Dresden resulted in the founding of a new society. Um, and so it, it was sort of easier to see breaks um, there. But it was also interesting because it's um, it's a kind of environment that historians of science haven't looked at much in the German case. It's a, it's a really important court center. Um, with a very ambitious dynasty that, um, you know, some of the people that I focus on in Reichenbach are both courtiers and, um, you know, appointees of the Saxon uh, royal family. And there's a lot around the court that relates to, to things that we as historians of, of science care about. And that's something that, um, that hasn't really been very widely explored in the history of German science for this period. And it's also a place that doesn't have a university. It has a medical academy, but not a university. And given the way that universities as institutions have kind of dominated discussion of German science in the first half of the 19th century, I thought that would be really useful to have my, my home base be in a place that was an important intellectual center, but didn't have a university. So to see what that looks like, um, it was was helpful, I felt like, for the project. Great. Thank you so much. So as we move into the later chapters of the book and we move away from Dresden, um, although we'll, we'll see Dresden again and we move into other kinds of contexts, um, one of the things that starts happening is a distinction begins to be drawn between natural history, natural philosophy, and the practical sciences of nature. And this is a distinction that um, continues to be fleshed out in different ways through the end of the period that you're looking at. So can you talk about this a little bit? Uh, this is sort of how did this distinction between more kind of natural history, natural philosophy sorts of endeavors and more practical endeavors emerge? And, and why did that emerge in, in this particular way um, in the period you're looking at? So this is actually that that shift that I talk about in the middle part of the book is something that in, in some ways is a very familiar um, shift to German historians and his, historians of German science, this um, rise of the ideal of pure Wissenschaft that rejects Enlightenment utilitarianism with its interest in making knowledge practical. Um, and one of the things that I was really struck by looking at associational life is the degree to which um, this is this really represents a kind of strategic retreat. <laughs> it's not as if the figures in this period they, they also have plenty of connections to practical endeavor, but um, there is this just exploding field of, um, of practical science, particularly around agriculture in this time period, um, that these, you know, the sort of learned estate can no longer manage. <laughs> um, and it, I was really struck by... Um, in the, the way the traditional story goes, it sort of sees this new ideal of Wissenschaft eclipse, eclipsing enlightened util, Enlightenment utilitarianism. And that's putting it a little too stark. I mean, people have recognized, recognized that there were continuities before, certainly. But, um, you know, the degree to which this is a sort of defensive posture um, and one that also comes with the creation of a new public for practical science that, that really... Is, you know, 
certainly still has respect to a certain degree for um, university professors and other people they would view as theorists, but that really has its own dynamic, um, its own membership, its own concerns, and that feels quite confident about setting its own priorities. Um, and that's actually my second book is going to be about the agricultural sciences. And I'm kind of more convinced than ever that that's the, the right take on what's going on in the 19th century. But. Oh, great. Cool. So we'll look forward to seeing that book as well. Um, okay, great. So as we move into um, into this story and sort of get later into the this period in the 19th century that you're moving into... We come to a chapter that looks, uh, chapter four, that looks at how local learned societies help Germany's university educated elite distinguish themselves from the increasing crowd of other new authors and collectors and other people who are emerging in this field. Now, this has something to do here, um, as you mentioned, with the Romantic era's enthusiasm for the unity of natural knowledge. And this idea of a kind of unified natural knowledge is something that you talk about uh, a little bit earlier in the book as well. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that for what happens um, in this period when we have um, university-educated elite trying to distinguish themselves? Yeah, I really, I always felt like chapter four was sort of the fulcrum chapter of the book. That in, in some ways, that's the most important chapter somehow. Um, and that moment is is really the crucial moment in the um, consolidation of this category. Um, and what I think is particularly important to me um, about that part of the book is to show the importance of um, local identity in the lives of this emerging elite and the ways in which that's part of what makes this new unified ideal of science so appealing is that because, I mean, Germany really is very precocious as a land of specialized journals. Um, And so, you know, on the one hand, the people that you're looking at in those societies are people who are very active um, in most cases as published authors, or at least the leaders in the societies are, um, and who are part of specialized conversations with people of similar interests, you know, all over the place. Um, And a lot of what they're wrestling with is how do you transfer those um, specialized conversations back into a form that gives you some kind of credit and status um, in your everyday environment. Uh, and I think those kind of pressures are um, a, a large and important part of the explanation for why German associate, scientific associational life ends up looking the way that it does. That um, that you know, on the one hand, they have um, they are you know I think other historians have made a fairly convincing case are, are probably more intensely specialized than their say French or British cam- uh, counterparts. Um, and more fragmented politically. <laughs> they don't have a single social center or and social political center um, to which they can go. And that problem of, of con- guarding and preserving a reputation in that sort of an environment makes these local generalist groups very important. And I think that that's part of what puts flesh on the bones, if you will, of this um, romantic ideal of the unity of science, which I think is 
you know, and, and I don't think, I don't know that I would want to draw the um, directional arrows one, arrows one way or the other. I mean, I think part of the reason people talk about those ideals so much um, is precisely the appeal of these kinds of forum where they can broadcast what they're doing to their peers in their, their, um, their local cities and towns um, and, and get recognition for it um, and have it matter in a meaningful day-to-day way um, and who they are in their um in their daily settings. Great. And one of the things that you say, um, and that, that I think is a really important point in this chapter, is that these general kind of multidisciplinary um, scientific forums that you're describing, the ones that were founded in this period, they're not at odds with more dis- more directed disciplinary discussion. They're rather complementary to it. And I think this is um, this is really an example of a broader methodological set of moves that you're making in the book. When you're you seem to be urging us to avoid understanding history history through recourse to simple binaries, right? There's, there's, throughout the book, there's a reminder that it's not one way or the other. This wasn't necessarily a matter of a stark choice that people were making. Rather, these existed in a kind of ecology um, that, that wasn't black or white. There was a lot of um, movement among what we might think of as these poles or two different modes of being. I think I would, I might even put it more strongly than that. I think the appeal generalist forums um, were was in many ways directly related to the emergence of more intense more intense forms of specialization that in a, um, it it actually made local generalist sociability more important for people um, and and I think one of the one of the ways that you can really see that is that a lot of you know the, the um, previous literature on these societies a lot of times would kind of pick out specialist groups and say, aha, there we see modern disciplinary specialization in an early form. And the generalist groups were supposed to be part of some earlier stage. And if you look at the geography of specialized versus generalist groups in Germany in this time period, the specialist groups are often in kind of small and not very important places, and their members are all often not very eminent. And the fact that they're so specialized is a mark of modesty on their part <laughs> in a lot of cases. That's how they themselves perceive it. And when they become more ambitious and want to attract more attention, then they become generalist society. There are several cases of that. Now, as we sort of move um, into the, the closing chapters of the book, or the last half of the book, I guess, one of the things that you look at in the next chapter in particular is you're introducing these two figures that I think you alluded to earlier in our discussion. Um, in, in the context of looking at the ways that learned men of the 19th century kind of pitched their cause to members of the the educated estates, as you called them, and, and also the wider literary and social public. Now, one of the things that emerges for both, for both of these figures, or in the case of both of these figures, um, is the importance of gender as a sticking point for both of these men who are trying to sort of negotiate to push their agendas through. Can you talk a little bit about that as it emerged as an issue for you? Because gender emerges very explicitly in this chapter, but there are also uh, other places in the book where you talk about the importance of bringing that into the way we're understanding these phenomena. One of the key boundary markers of the learned public with gender um, you know, and there are a few cases um, of, of people who make it to the other side of that boundary, but that, you know, is a, is a fairly standard understanding um, for the time period that I'm talking about. And in, I think, particularly in the, in the 20s, um, 
and 30s, this becomes a potential problem for Naturfolker who are trying to craft a certain kind of public identity that borrows on models of um, you know, literary heroes. Um, you know, this is kind of, this is the time period of, of um, the emergence of Germany's national literature, really, the time period the book covers. Um, and, you know, there are these new literary heroes like Schiller and Goethe, um, who are still in the process of being canonized, but, but clearly the, the two men I'm talking about in this chapter um, deeply admire what the people like that have been able to, to um, pull off in terms of the public figure they're able to, to cut and the kind of attention they're able to attract. Um, and, you know, I think Reichenbach, who offers evening entertainments to a, a mixed polite public in Dresden, is clearly very interested in being taken seriously by the circle surrounding the court. Um, you know, he wants women to care about what he does. He wants them in his audience. He wants them as readers um, because that's part in practice of being acclaimed um, in the broader literary public sphere. Um, and there are a number of things about natural science that make that a little tricky. It, it has still a lot of utilitarian overtones for the general public, um, you know, coming out of en enlightened traditions and in, uh, you know, official conventional wisdom, women are not supposed to be too concerned with uh, utilitarian things. Uh, natural science, it's got some ties through um, a German discipline called cameralism to, to governance in the state and other male uh, purview and things like natural history also have a reputation for being very pedantic. Um, it's one of the common criticisms people make. It's the, you know, the kind of providence of, of small, small-minded and the asocial, um, and and those are all potential liabilities. I think um, that that people like Reichenbach and Nies von Essenbeck face in trying to make a bigger splash within the broader public culture. And and so I think for each of them, the issue of, of gender becomes. Um, uh, I, I making the argument that this is also uh, something that should interest women is um, is an important. They see that as an important point to win. Um. Great. Thanks, Denise. So as we move also forward um, into the book, and I know there's a ton of material in here that's really fascinating, and there's no way we're going to have time to talk about all of it, but I want to make sure that we hit on at least a couple of the really important points that are happening, or the important moves that are happening in these last three chapters before the conclusion. So the chapter six, the nature of the fatherland, in particular, speaks to one of the kinds of phenomena that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is the importance of the regional or the local um, to what's happening in this story. This chapter looks, among other things, at the ways that naturalists negotiated local and regional practices of natural history with larger sort of emerging concepts of the German nation. So Kent, for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the importance of regional natural history um, within this larger context of sort of emerging German nationhood? This is a really interesting time period in that process because you've got already in a, among um, educated Germans sense of a German cultural nation. Um, there are you know, debates going on about precisely what political form that ought to take in some circles. Um, and you also have the dynastic states of German-speaking Europe working very hard in these decades to build a greater sense of, um, of state loyalty among their subjects. 
Um, you have people who were part of regions that got um, stuck on to a larger state um, after 1815 that don't really like where they ended up and who, as a result, cultivate an independent sense of regional identity that's different from their dynastic identity and that might or might not also be um, tied in with this broader sense of belonging to the German nation more broad, uh, more widely. Um, and and natural history and the practice of natural history is very much tied up in that broader political process of negotiating um, what counts as a community, um, what comes together, <laughs> and what doesn't. Um, and and uh, you know, there's this you see already in the, the 30s and 40s a real proliferation of these local societies. Um, and, but I, I think that uh, this political negotiation definitely isn't the only thing that drives that. I think a lot of what you see going on are um, these, what I call it in an earlier part of the book, these new men. So people kind of coming in at the fringes of the educated estates, reappropriating um, a lot of the tools of the learned public and um, trying to, uh, to get recognition and credit from um, from people, uh, both more eminent people and also just from um, other peers with similar interests. Thank you. So speaking of localities, the next chapter um, takes us from um, the kinds of context that we were looking at. And you mentioned specific um, areas before, like we talked about Dresden, um, for example. The next chapter focuses in particular on Saxony as a location of study. So can you talk about that a little bit? What about Saxony were you interested in and how was that ideal for looking at the kinds of phenomena, um, sort of emerging discourses of um, sort of technical academies and technical education and modernity um, that you look at in this chapter? The most precociously industrial parts of Germany, and it's also quite urban. Um, and so it's, it's this sort of interesting place to look at what are going to become, you know, even more de- well-developed and defining trends in the second half of the 19th century. Um, and one of the things that really um, struck me in, in writing that chapter, you know, there's a real tendency to s- assume that natural science as a category um, gets a lot of credit from the technological innovations of the 30s and 40s and, you know, railway enthusiasm. And I found that to be true to a certain extent. Um, and it's definitely true if you're looking at pro- professors at technical academies who are often university trained men with those kinds of allegiances. Um, but a lot of the industrial promotion literature, that concept almost never comes up. And it's the more general concept of Wissenschaft, um, sort of science in general, that is still the rallying cry for the, the practical folks. Um, and that I thought was a really interesting disjuncture. Um, and another sign of um, how, how limited the the conceptual influence can sometimes be of the university educated elite. I mean, it's yet another example of the practical sciences sort of forging their own way. Now, as we come to the close of the book, and as we sort of come to the the close of our questions before I ask you just a couple things to wrap up, the final chapter before the conclusion really takes us into a really interesting case in which you look at the distinction between two branches of the sciences that might kind of roughly map onto the natural sciences on the one hand and the social sciences and humanities on the other. And I say that knowing that this is not a perfect mapping, but sort of for the sake of, um, of you know, sort of talking about it right now. 
so central to this chapter, um, and this sort of brings us, I think, full circle uh, from what one of the things that you were talking about earlier in the conversation in this context, allowing us to sort of relook at and re-understand and reimagine some of the fundamental aspects of contemporary science that we might take for granted. This chapter, I think, among other things, really asks us to think again about what the history of something that seems as fundamental to science, like the scientific method, might look like in different contexts and different places. Um, so crucial to this chapter, and really the, this kind of, I think, acts as a kind of culmination for the reader of the book, is the emergence of the idea of a, a natural scientific method, or perhaps multiple scientific methods. So can you talk about that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. This is a chapter that's about um, mostly about a set of educational debates that are going on in the sort of middle third of the 19th century in Germany that I think are really shaping um, the rhetoric and some of the shared um, uh, conceptual assumptions about science that um, exist from then on. And and I think the, and the key topic of the chapter is this idea that the natural sciences are somehow epistemologically distinct from other kinds of knowledges, particularly um, the human sciences, social sciences, the humanities, um, and that they have perhaps their own unique method that's fundamentally different from the method of the humanities and the social sciences. And this becomes, in the later 19th century, there's a very famous set of high-powered philosophical debates um, called the Methodenstreit about precisely this issue, and it's remained kind of, it's, um, it's sort of like uh, C.P. Stokes' uh, two cultures for um, people in the Anglo-American world. This is kind of a, you know, a, a sort of standard thing to gesture to in the German intellectual tradition. Um, and, yeah, I think this is... Um, is, is really what makes science into something that can define an age, right? Because this set of debates is really what solidifies this idea that science has its own distinct way of looking at the world that somehow is quite different from how other bodies of knowledge deal with the world. So it detaches it um, to a new degree from the more general prestige of learned knowledge in general and gives it its own set of, of epistemological characteristics. Um, and then after that happens, you start to see the um, particularly the adjective natural scientific used in all kinds of new ways. So there's, you know, um, in the 50s, there's a natural scientific school of law, which is, is literally a something that just wouldn't even have made linguistics sense really, or would have meant something very, very different in the 18th century or, you know, the, um, the new natural scientific medicine that, um, Nojo helps to popularize. There are all sorts of, um, iterations and ways in which the natural sciences can be seen as imbuing other things with their qualities that, um, I think weren't really part of the conceptual universe of the, um, the pre-1840 period in the same way, even when people talked about the value of natural philosophy and natural history for other kinds of pursuits. Great. Well, Denise, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And I know that uh, we didn't get to, or I'll, I'll, I know, and you know, but listeners may not know as much. There's a ton of material in the book that we didn't get to. It's ex an extraordinarily rich study, and it's full of really interesting stories and really interesting uh, points that we didn't necessarily have a chance to talk about um, today. So is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to cover, but that you'd like to point out, especially for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read the book. Maybe I could uh, 
mentioned it briefly the way I chose to frame the cons- the conclusion, which is this the story of a wedding that looks at um, two families whose family trees kind of capture all of the different or more or less all of the different types of people that I talk about over the course of the study. Um, and one of the things that um, I found very interesting about this study um, is the, de- the degree to which as historians of science, um, it, you know, I think this is a, a great example of how we can participate in issues of interest to general historians as well, because one of the things that comes out when you look at the history of this category and who can or can't be associated with it, and also the difference between the learned and the educated public is, um, you know, there are a lot of divisions that German social historians take for granted, like between the educated public and um, the public. That you look at scientific circles, get all mixed up. Um, so that was something that um, was kind of an important point of the study for, for me, um, was, was also a contribution to the kind of typology of the German social field in the 19th century and the role that we as historians of science can play in, in helping to, to sort that out as well. Great. So you mentioned earlier on that uh, your next project might be something on agricultural sciences. And so I, I was going to ask you, what's inspiring you now? What are you working on now? And what can we hope to read um, about in the future? Is it that project? And if, if so, and or if not, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I book on the agricultural sciences in Germany um, in roughly the same time period. Um, and my interest in this came kind of grew out of um, the, a lot of the material that I was looking at, for example, for chapter three or, or chapter two, um, I got interested in kind of noble participation in science. Um, and what that, I just spent a year in Germany doing research for that. And what that book is shaping up to be about is, is really an examination of how science and the market interact. And particularly, I mean, this is, and it's also sort of going to be organized as another uh, history of concepts. <laughs> and the kind that I'm interested in is the market <laughs> as analyzed category. Um, because I think that the history of the natural sciences actually, and the agricultural sciences play an important role in um, how people in Europe and this in, in Germany in this time period go from understanding a market as an event um, or a location, right? Um, the, you know, the yearly Leipzig wool market or whatever um, to, uh, to a more a generalized um, modern conception um, that involves the market as a sort of abstract set of forces, um, which of course you can already find in high political economy in the 18th century, but I'm, I'm interested in um, looking at how within agricultural science um, that understanding of what is to be an economic agent, what sort of field you're operating in <laughs> um, as an economic agent, um, how agricultural science is, is part of that very important shift. Um, you know, something that takes this out of, of the pages of um, British political economy and makes it a concept that the Germans actually use. And I think that, um, that agriculture is a really important, the commercialized agriculture is a really important location for that story. Well, sounds great. Best of luck with that research. And Denise, thank you so much for joining us and t- talking with me about your book today. It's a great book and congratulations. Well, thank you, Carla. It's- You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.